You're listening to The Plug with Neil Griffith. All right, welcome to The Plug for the very first time, James Vincent McMorrow. Welcome to the podcast, my friend. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's good to talk to you. Where are you right now? I'm in Dublin. I'm in Ireland. Yeah, I imagine I've been. Morning there. It, it is. Yeah, it's it's 10 a.m. now. You're getting the best part of me. I've been doing these for like two <laughs> hours now, so they're, they're <laughs> the earlier ones. How are, is the press uh, grind? I, you know what? I'm actually enjoying it this time. I have to say, um, I can honestly say that historically I've loved it, <laughs> but um, but I actually am. I th- I think it, it, a lot of it is to do with like the the work like I genuinely want to talk about this album maybe in a way that I didn't want to talk as much about the other ones I don't know or wanted to talk about specific things whereas with this whole thing I kind of I'm quite excited and also I've been locked up for a year and a half so I'm excited to talk to anyone about anything yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot like the last especially three months in particular I've made like a conscious effort do not talk about the fucking lockdown yeah but, like <laughs> Sydney's been in it for three months Australia's kind of juggling in and out of it you've been enjoying life a little bit um I know that you were the first musician to play a live show in what 18 months in Ireland back yeah. in June. Yeah. 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 I mean, it was a strange feeling. Um, very surreal experience, very manic experience. Um, and, and like, you know, it was like, let's not pretend it was like some grand, like 10,000 people. It was like, you know, 500 people. It was very structured, very um, static in a lot of ways, but also unbelievably amazing and probably the best show I've ever played in my entire life. It was all those things. Very strange. Yeah. Do you feel yeah. like life is as normal as it can be in Dublin? Uh, yeah, it's getting there now. I think in the last month, it's kind of turned a corner. It still felt very precarious. Um, again, I'm like you. I'm, I'm like, can't think of anything I want to do less than talk about the last year and a half in that kind of like, oh, do you remember that? Like, but it, it, it is, it is nice if to feel a sense of. I don't want to return to normal. I want I want to come out of this with some sort of something to fucking show for it. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I I, I want to come through it and feel different, but um, I have to say there is something lovely in the sense of normalcy of like getting on a plane and going to London. And I've been in the studio a lot over there and working, and it does feel incredible, <laughs> like mm. to be able to just have frivolousness like in your life again because everything that we did last year was was with an amount of like can we do this can we do that what are we allowed to do that changes the wiring of your brain so um it was almost jarring getting to a place where they were just like do whatever you want and you're like what really I'm hoping I- that that idea of like being able to do anything you want will be <laughs> like a treat again like yeah. you know we, we were talking about before like sydney is about to get we can go have picnics outside with five people maximum yeah. Yeah, I remember like I, I've seen you a couple of times, like the idea of going to a live show. Yeah. Just a normal fucking live music show is, yeah. is crazy. Man. I can't wait for that to be a thing again. Yeah, it, it and it is as good as you want it to be. For me, it was anyway, I, like being at shows, even like going to like going for a drink with friends and stuff has a sense of like, can you believe we're doing this? Like, <laughs> it, it's lovely. Like, it really is. Like, you realize how much previous to this you just expected life to continue and you kind of took all of this stuff for granted and i have no doubt that at some point i'll start to take everything for granted again but right now i feel like i'm in a nice little pocket where i'm like mm. 
I can't believe I get to do that. That's amazing. I'm like, I'm, I'm about to get on a plane in a couple of hours, go to London again. And I'm excited <laughs> in a way I never expected to be, to go to London. Like, you know, it's not, I love it there, but I never was like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm going to the airport. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, we have to say congratulations on this album, Grapefruit Season. Um, you know, as I said, I, I'm a big fan of yours. Album number five, this album feels, I don't know, I fucking loved it for just for context. But it's got everything. Like it's, yeah. the album kicks off. I don't mean I don't want to spoil it for anyone. But it kicks off very like upbeat, dancey. It feels quite poppy. And then that middle part of the album is very vintage McMorrow, like very yeah. old, very acoustic. Back yeah. to your roots, which I love. I loved it all. Obviously, you've had to sit on this album <laughs> for a while. Again, we're not fucking talking about COVID, but COVID <laughs> delayed the album. But yes. you've had to sit in it for a while. Because you did, did you want to go back to this album and, and change things and work things over or were you completely happy with the product and it was more just a fucking waiting game where you are just having to wait for this release date? No, I changed a, a, quite a decent amount of it. Um, I think that's actually that middle section that you talked about, which was, I guess, the more like alts version of me. Um, the, I hate the idea, like the classic version of me or whatever. <laughs> like they're all they're all me, um, but... That those those sides of me, I guess, is how I would describe it. They were a little bit lacking from the album, I felt, because the the goal with this record was to make something that reflected life to me in how I interact with it, and that is sort of non-linear and quite chaotic, and all of these different elements and energies at any one time can can be coming out of nowhere. I like I love there's a lot of musicians I love that make music that is an exploration of a single theme, be it like uh, lyrically or an instrument you know guitar is my instrument that's never been me it's never been me from the day one I've always wanted to do everything all the time because that's how my brain absorbs it so I wanted to give a record that did that and I kind of realized that I'd missed some elements of of my personality so I, I took last year to go back in and change as anything that I felt like wasn't candid and an accurate reflection of me anything where I was maybe dialing it in a little bit or phoning it in um because it always happens you're you sort of albums become this thing you start them and you're so excited and then by the end you're sort of dragging a dead horse across the line where you just want to get it there and that was what was happening with this album pre-lockdown we always have to talk about this shit, but it just it just that was it's the reality the you, words we're just not going into the fucking subject real yeah, yeah that's all that's the but, rule yeah, but, it, you know, it was obvious something was happening and I was like, I need to get this album done. So I just started like doing what I needed to do to wrap it up. And then last year I was like, no, I've got time. It would be ridiculous if I sat through this whole process and didn't try and, and make everything as good as it could be. So um, like songs like True Love, Waiting, and We Don't Kiss Under Umbrellas, that middle section, that that all appeared last year. It was all there in to a degree, but not finished. And I sort of resigned myself to it not being finished. So. so when you said you felt that there was something missing, because again, you're a kind of songwriter who can who can bounce between folk, folk and Alton. You're not like, for, for a lack of a better example, you're not ACDC. You know, that they're a rock band. They, they play rock music. That's fucking it. Yeah. yeah. So when you're saying that something was missing, like if you're experimenting and, and trying different sounds with these R&B sounds, the dance sounds, why did you feel you needed to, to bring some of that I call it the vintage McMorrow, but you know what I mean. The acoustic. Yeah, no, I completely know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, I completely know what you mean. I think it was maybe the nature of last year. I think I needed to just sit with a, a guitar and I don't like the word. I don't say meditate over the guitar or anything like that. But there was like a sense of like, I'm in my house. I'm not in a studio. 
maybe this is an opportunity to reconnect with a couple of things that like I'm quite a I'm quite a belligerent person right so like when my when I first came out you know the guitar was the thing that people talked about and the whole time I was like I'm not in any way emotionally connected to this instrument like beyond the fact that I raised playing it you know I, I love the guitar but I'm not you know John Martin I'm not a guy that sits and tries to master this thing and I was using it as this tool and when it became this thing that people sort of like were like that's you you're that thing and I grew up in a sort of post-genre mindset I became quite belligerent within it I made post-tropical and I pushed my way out of that as best I could into a world that I was like this is the world I want to occupy I want it all to be everything's on the table for me but the guitar I do think sort of succumbed to that to a degree where since then I never really sat with anything on an album where I was like I'm going to just sit and play guitar and maybe last year was that moment right like you know I'm in my house I'm not in my studio I can't do a lot of things but I still felt compelled to write and the guitar was there and it sort of found its way back in in, or, in an organic way and I never made a deal with myself about this but the, you know the fact that it came back in an organic way it wasn't contrived it felt like something to pursue whereas if I'd been in the studio and I was like there's a gap and it needs to be filled by like acoustic songs because that's what people know me for to a degree and I would never do that I couldn't be less interested in doing anything that is contrived like that so the fact that it felt organic felt like something to pursue and then when I did it I was like oh okay yeah I, I love this and I think I'd forgotten that I loved it because again it was that thing that people forced on me so I very much pushed it away do you think that if it wasn't for the <laughs> lockdowns you wouldn't have found yourself in that position just you in a room with a guitar yeah I do I honestly do those sounds like wholeheartedly wouldn't exist if it wasn't for last year because again like we were we've all been on this track I'm on this track you're on your track and pre last year the assumption was like everything will remain the same and, and and I was happy in my world I was happy being the person that like I'd worked very hard to kind of like remove those labels from me and to be person that like when I put out music people expect the unexpected to a degree they expect something that's not standard guy by himself like I am an alternative artist in a very well-rounded way I consider myself to be so uh, and I, so I was content in that world. I wasn't looking to be regressive or to be, um, uh, what's the word? Um, like, not like, like I've never looked at music and thought I need to recreate that, right? Like, even if I, if I loved Neil Young because my dad loved Neil Young, I never looked at Neil Young as a nostalgist. That's what I'm trying to say. And thought, oh, in order to be Neil Young in the modern world, you need to make on the beach or you know after the gold rush he was trying to push himself forward in 1967 in the same way that you're trying to push yourself forward I'm trying to push myself forward in the modern age right so I've always wanted to push it forward I've never wanted to be that nostalgist so yes had it not been for last year and the fact that I was sitting with my guitar and I had nothing to, nothing that I could do other than sit and try and find a love and a route back into it so yeah, it was it was great, and to to the degree that like this next record that I've already started is very guitar based in a way that I never anticipated for myself because I realized that like I I was putting these labels I was I was almost the one putting the labels on me going like you're not the guitar guy don't do it do everything other than it and like allow yourself that freedom last year because there was no no one was looking over my shoulder no one was judging anything no one gave a shit everyone was concerned with their own stuff right so it gave a lovely opportunity for me to kind of go back and open up that door again. I'm going to ask about that new album in a little bit, but I do have to ask because, you know, and as a fan, like a lot of people, when they see some of their favorite artists signed to a major label, 
yeah. that can be a, a total fear of oh, oh they're a sellout now they're gonna change their sound they're gonna do whatever the label wants them to do what was your experience coming with Columbia? Because again, this is album number five. This is not like you just had some hot shot debut album and now you've been yeah. pinched. You yeah. know the artist you want to be. Yeah. Did you chase? Yeah, it, did you go to them or did they chase you? They chased me. Um, right. Yeah. Like I, honestly, I, I was very content. Like I've been independent my entire career, and happily so. Like, but I think that when I was a kid you had this romantic notion of, and I'm not, I don't know, I'm no romantic. I'm no, I'm, I'm a cynical person in, in a healthy way, I think. But I used to like, I would obsess over what labels people were on. Like when I was a kid, I would like look at the inlay cards and be like, oh, they had this A&R, like Fiona Apple had this a and like silly stuff. And you'd be like, one day I'll have an A&R, like that kind of like romantic notion of the music industry. And not that it's romantic at all. It's a business and it's like, not very well remunerated for artists it's not it's it's not the most healthy of things but at the same time I had spent my entire life as an independent on the outside I think I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder because of that um, and I've been you know very successful in that world but I think I wanted to just see behind the curtain I just wanted to see what it felt like and um, like I said I'm not I'm not an idiot I knew that if I went into it, I'm not the guy that's like, okay, cool. Let's spend a million dollars on the most ridiculous, frivolous nonsense. I'm still this person that's very like indie. That's very alternative. That's very like, also like my world is like a cottage industry. Like I have 15, 16 people that work for me that don't work for the label that don't work for anybody else. So all of our jobs are to like make the thing that we want to make. And that didn't change. So moving to Columbia felt like a I would be, I would kick myself if I didn't try this to just see what it was like to, to work with a sense of frivolousness, make albums with Paul Epworth. You know, that was the reality. Uh, you know, I was working with really great people historically 1985 on my third album, an amazing producer, but I was basically like, I was paying for all that myself. If you want to get really nuts and bolts about it. And there's a different interaction when you're the one paying for the thing. Like if I was making a movie and I had a million euros to spend or if someone gave me a million euros to spend to make that movie, there would be two different movies. Cause you're like, this isn't my money. It's like dealer money, right? It's, it's like house money. You just, you spend it and you make something that might be a little bit less panicked or a little bit less, like I've hit the wall or I've hit the ceiling. And that, that's always been my life. Like, you know, I've made albums to the degree where like we can make it within that little cottage industry and it's been fruitful, but I wanted to make this album and I knew it was going to require something that was bigger and had a team that could help me make it. So yeah, Columbia came to me with a, with an offer that was one album. So it wasn't like I was signing my life away or anything like that. It just felt like a nice opportunity to make an album with people that I always wanted to make an album with, like Paul Epworth. And like, that was what we did. Is there any conversation that needs to be had though, where it's kind of like, okay, great. I'll sign the contract, but I'm doing what I want to do or do they kind of give you the free reins and say, look, we just love you. We just want to work with you. Is it, it's basically like out of the, out of the movies, right? Like you, you work with the, the corporate people who want to make you something that you're not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know what it had, there were moments, pockets of like dissonance where like, you know, there was like, so like they would say things like, you know, like we want to try and break you wider. And I would sort of go, well, I've, you know, I've sold hundreds of thousands of records and, and, like if you're looking at those binaries, which I don't really care about, then I would say like, you know, I've got a billion plus streams. I have these things. I don't feel like I'm an artist that needs to be broken, but they would be like, oh no, but on this level and this level, which are those more overt commercial levels. I have no interest in engaging on that level while I'm making the music. 
like at all because like i just don't care and i don't about the I don't, you know you can't make great music by giving a fuck about the commercial reality well i can't not at the time you have to make music based on what you want to do so there were little moments where they would say stuff like that and i was like just be clear i'm gonna make what i'm gonna make and it'll be what it'll be and your job will be to like amplify that as best as you can in an organic way so they understood at each juncture and i have a proven track record based in my world i can also i don't really need them that was another thing like you know paul epworth who is the uh, one of my key collaborators on this record paul is a big fan of mine in a very organic way you know like rising water is one of his favorite songs of all time so there was no sense of like i need you to get to him so they kind of knew you are not that we're lucky to have you or anything like that but they knew that the the, the dynamic was not going to be like what can you do for me i was going to mm do what I wanted to do. And that when they, when the time was right, they would step in and help. And they did. And that's the thing, like, you know, the A&R Julian was like very holistic, very lovely and, and a good person and really empowered me to kind of do whatever I want while also knowing that I'm not a frivolous asshole that was just going to like, you know, spend a million euros on like, you know, some ridiculous studio in LA. I found a studio in LA for a month that they didn't even know about. And it was like, a hundred percent cheaper than what they were willing to spend but it was better for me so they were very much like oh you're not that person you're not the guy that's <laughs> going to be like coming in going like you know get me ocean way so i can use the same piano michael jackson used like i don't sure. give a fuck about that kind of stuff like that's a great idea if that's your bag but for me i'm a dude that sits in a room surrounded by instruments it can be anywhere i don't really care and so I was never frivolous in the process. So they respected that, I think. It's funny. I read that in an interview you did recently where you said one of the reasons mm -hmm. as well, you wanted to be more ambitious and you've, you listened to some of your old music and you wish you could go back and change things. Do you mean in a, in a purely a production sense or do you mean the way you, you did songs at all? Because, you know, obviously you have hits like Cavalier and you just mentioned recent songs like Rise and Water. One of my favorite songs is The National. Tell me these aren't the songs that you want to say, no. oh, fuck that, I want to change these. No, they're the songs that I got right. See, oh, good. that's the okay, thing. Great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, see, that's the thing. Like, I mean, like, so that with, with the, the True Care album, with song like The National, that, that album is like almost, I, I put that outside of my, my discography to a degree because it was made in two weeks and it was designed to just be this like beautiful little artifact. And I love it. So it's not an album that I would go back and go like, I wish I did that. And that. Hmm. I love it from start to finish for what it is. But so say, for instance, that third album with We Move, songs like Rising Water, Get Low, they're the songs that I really got right because I went in the studio, I went to Toronto, I got it, I went in, they were the first songs up on deck and 85 really, like he changed everything that I wanted him to change. He really taught me a lot about the idea of like being a reductive, like reducing down, refining down your ideas, not being like ridiculous. Like with the post-tropical album Cavalier, I got right because I was quite refined in my palette. There's other songs in that album where I went crazy and was like 2000. There's like one song um, called Outside Digging that, I, or no, not Outside Digging. Um, I can't remember what song it is, but there's definitely like 300 vocal tracks. Like there are hundreds and hundreds of layers and levels. And 85 automatically came in and was like, get rid of all that and refine it down to something that's quite lean and quite precise. And you, that means you have to stand on the legs of your songwriting. You can't get by by like putting in all these little motifs to try and trick people so with rising water i got that right with get low we got that right but there's other songs in that album where we just we just hit up against the wall which was like to a degree the financial wall where those were the songs we went in early on and then i wanted to go back and do it again but i was like okay i've spent x amount on this record and my team are saying this is your budget and it, it like it changes how you make music i did 
10 mixes of rising water to get it right because the kick drum on it was so bonkers that the first mix we did was unusable because when we sent it to radio it was like I was like Kanye West mixing like stronger where like he did like 15 versions of it he's going to Timbal and trying different versions like I went to Jimmy Douglas who's like one of the best mix engineers on the planet who, who is Timbaland's mix engineer and he couldn't get the, the kick drum to behave and so we went back to, I found another guy John O'Mahony in New York and he basically had to do 7,000 crazy things to the kick drum to get it to sit. So these, and all of that costs time and costs money. So that's more what I'm saying is that like, if I could do that for each song, I would have had 12 rising waters on my hands, like 12 songs that I'm like, this is exactly what I want, but I couldn't do that. Whereas with this album, I did that, you know, with mm. every song, I tried different mix engineers. I tried different things because I have a very specific idea in my mind at all times of what I want to achieve. And I was able to achieve it. I mean, you alluded to it earlier, and I don't know if you're actually allowed to say it, but you are writing new music for a new album. Is it too early to say that this is also going to be with Columbia? Uh, I mean, I don't know. It all depends on how well I do with this one. Right. <laughs> like, like again, like I, I'm not, um, I'm not, like I used to always think about the next thing and the next thing and the next thing because that's what life told me was like, you know, expect to get to the next thing. And now I'm just like, this album even with this record, like, like I'm, I made this album over two years and I wanted to put it out last year. I didn't, I changed a lot of it. So I still feel fresh to me, but it's still, I'm a very next stage kind of person historically. So I'm just trying to exist in a different stasis right now and just a bit more of a moment and appreciate that this record's coming out and then let them do their thing. I'm kind of working on a lot of, as long as I'm making music, I'm very content and I'm making I'm producing a lot of records for other people right now. I'm writing a lot of songs for other people now in a way that I wasn't able to historically because I was too busy with my own thing. So what happens with the next record? Like I'm going to record it really soon because like it does feel very guitar-y and I kind of want to get in a room and do two weeks of just like grind and just like really like wake up at 5 a.m. and just start playing drums. So I'm going to approach it like that and see what happens, but then like take it on spec and, and maybe I'll take it to someone else and they'll do something else to it and take it to someone else. So who knows what will happen with Columbia? Like for now, you know, I'll let them take this and, and, and try and like, you know, smash it. Who are you it. writing <laughs> songs for? Is it Bieber? Uh, I can't. <laughs> can I tell people it's Bieber? <laughs> you can tell people it's Bieber. It, you can, yeah. I mean, I can't, I can't physically divulge who I'm writing <laughs> for. No, like genuinely, like it's, it's very, a lot of it's very NDA um, like stuff um, until it comes out. But um, it's like corporate now, James, Jesus. No, it's, it's actually super fun. I got to say, like, I, I've been, I've been sort of asked to write songs for people for the majority of my life. And I can tell you some ridiculous examples of me turning it down in the beginning, because like, I was very precious about songwriting and I still am, but also I have all of these ideas that I really love that I know that sit on hard drives and folders and I've never done anything with them. So this last year has given me runway to actually go and engage with people on a meaningful level and try and find a way that's not corporate and not frivolous. That's like actually ticks the box for me as, as someone that is like quite belligerent and quite creative and, and, and doesn't really fuck around with people that I don't respect or like, you know? So I can, you know, I can't talk about who, but there is some really w wicked stuff. There's one like dance project in the UK, which is like an artist that is in like incredibly legit and incredibly like deep and interesting. And that's been so good. You know, I've been working with like my friend, Lil Silva, who produced, and helped me write a lot of the songs in this record. Like he's making an unbelievable record. The cast of characters on the album is, is like truly baffling and incredible. And uh, so there's just lots of 
interesting stuff that in the past I wouldn't have been able to dig into. So like, you know, there's, there's some bigger stuff and some stuff that is like very NDA like, and that's fine. But like, I'm trying to like, I don't, I don't like the term feed my soul, but like, I just want to, you know, I'm just trying to do stuff that like makes me happy. You know, that's the thing. Like, I don't know how, like in the past I was doing a lot of stuff that I don't know how happy it made me. I was just doing it. Cause I was like, this is the thing you need to do as an alternative musician. And now with this album, I think people can hear it. Like I am just very happy in the process of making music for, for the first time in a long time. It's funny you say that. And I don't know if I'm making the connection just because mm-hmm. you're both Irish or because I know that he's a big fan of yours, but Dermot Kennedy was on this podcast a couple of weeks ago. Cool. He was saying something similar where he was talking about um, he was asked to open for Taylor Swift, um, obviously pre-COVID. It got called off yeah. because of COVID. But he said at the time he was quite weird about it because he thought, how's that going to look for my image? Obviously, I'm not a Taylor Swift kind of artist. Now he's like, you know, moving year on, she's released a folk <laughs> album. She's worked with Bonneville. He said, I would have been insane to have turned that down. Yeah. And yeah, the idea I think, of like this, what you need to be, the image of what you think you need to be as, as an artist, it seems so like self, self-inflicted. Yes. Yeah. Hurting, you, it's just a waste of time. Yes. No, it, it is. Like you, you've, you've kind of nailed it. It is, a, it is a self-inflicted thing. I think I am the idea of how people might think of me or might perceive me has, it feels like a weight and it has felt like a weight and has influenced a lot of the work that I've made. And then you realize you have those moments like Dermot had there where he's like, no one gives a shit. Like no one fundamentally cares. Yes, there's a certain demographic, like the pitchforks of the world that they'll like write some review about you, but they're owned by Condé Nast. Like everything is corporate and everything has an amount of like forward facingness to it that's also like so like everybody is just trying their best and everybody has to form an opinion and do that but fundamentally like who fucking cares like do the thing that feels right like i completely get where he's coming from to not do that because you're just like what will this mean for me how will people perceive it i've turned down so many things because of that same instinct like i got asked to even like on a writing level i got asked to write for a, a debut album of someone that it went on to sell like like 10 15 million copies and i said no because i was really busy at the time with my first album coming out and i was also just a bit like yeah but like i'm i'm cool like i'm i'm yeah. this is I like you know what i mean like and what does that even fucking mean even as i said that out of my mouth i was like oh i feel a bit sick like it feels stupid but you earnestly believe that and you have to get to a point where you're like you know all things are on the table and the people that like you are going to like you the people that don't like you they're not, you're not going to change their minds. So like, relax, you know what I mean? Like, so it's just, it's a hard one to see. It's a, it's an easy one to say. It's a hard one to follow through on because we do still have that thing. Like you said, that self-inflicted sense of like, it's like martyrdom. Like I need to suffer for my art and and that's true to a degree, but you have to pick your battles and stuff like that. Like, like, you know, not turn down a Taylor Swift tour because you're like, like are her crowd going to receive this the way I intend it? Like, you know, the people that are in the crowd that will get it, will get it. Right. So like, you know, there's merit to everything. If you think about it that way. It's funny. I was like thinking about you were here last in 2017. Yeah. Played yeah. A, I don't know if you remember the venue. There's no reason you should. It's called the factory theater. I love that place. Yeah. There was a heckler I was... <laughs> and, really? like, you completely owned him. <laughs> I don't know why you've been like being in the crowd. And I was like, there was that guy that just, he, I don't think he was like trying to uh, be no. offensive. I think he was just drunk and annoying. And in between <laughs> songs, when you would talk to the crowd, he'd be loud and say dumb shit. And you were eventually like, can you shut the fuck up? 
<laughs> I think yeah. he left. But also in that show, and this is this has driven me crazy since. You played a song. I'm. Th- I think it was the national. But afterwards, yeah. you said that's one of my favorite songs, and I don't know why this is the the person I'm thinking of. I think you said John Legend said it's one of his favorite songs of all time. Or no, I that got was, that story um, completely fucking wrong. It was a song called Lost Angles off the third album. So it's the I think it's the last right. song on the third album is a piano song, and yeah, John Legend had hit me up about it and i think at one point was very close to the recording it as a, as to put on an album or something wow. like that yeah it was a strange one like um yeah it was a funny one because he was making records with blake mills um, and myself and blake w- were friendly are friendly and um and yeah someone had just told me anecdotally they were like oh yeah john and like you hear that stuff all the time like i hear a lot of the time like oh that so-and-so likes this song or you know it's just part of it and then you meet them and they're like oh i don't know who, who nice you know it's the mm-hmm. the hollywood show busy kind of thing so you always take it with a pinch of salt but then i we crossed paths in in new york one night and he was super lovely about it and talked about the song quite heartfelt with a lot of heart um so that was nice and i mean he didn't record or anything like that but um there was uh yeah that was that song i i remember the show like the heckler thing i always feel bad about because so i do um, remember the heckler i'm not making that up right no, no, no. I remember. And I remember being, I was exhausted. Like I, like those shows, cause we were, we were opening true care on, on the, the playing the full album and then yeah. we were coming back and doing a full set. And on the second show, I actually lost my voice. Cause I was in the studio with this, um, these guys, Hermitude, I want to say their name. Hermitude, yeah, yep. Hermitude. They, they had invited me to the studio and they were really, they were, it was like Motown stuff. They were like really demanding of me. They wanted me to sing this song that like we had worked on and it was an unbelievably tough vocal and i was just spent like four hours trying to do it they never even released the song assholes no they're good it's all good but it was just like i was, like it fucked my voice up so it was one of those shows where i remember like really leaning on the crowd to kind of get me there and being so exhausted but i remember the heckler i remember all the hecklers because i'm quite um like sharp-tongued when it comes to hecklers and i yeah. try and be nice i'm always like no i'm kidding i'm kidding it's all good it's all good but there have been some moments where I've been like, just, you know, I have a mic, you don't, you're never going to win. So just <laughs> shut the fuck up. And then people take it. And I feel bad because like, it is, they do feel turned on by the audience, but like, just, you know, yeah, pick, no, pick, pick your crowd. Like it's basically like a concert where it's just, we're going, we're at a hundred the whole time. Yeah. Like, and I think that's the hard thing. Like my shows are very intense experiences like i've always tried to bring that light and shade like between songs i've always tried to like break it up with some like laughter and try and make it funny because i do think it's important because the songs and the the once i'm into a song it gets quite intense and quite emotional but it does mean that they are very quiet shows like i've played shows to like four or five thousand people where like between songs no one says a thing it's like uncanny and, and quite spooky and you have to like kind of break up the tension because people don't know how to, to proceed they they're, they're like we need to be quite like um i don't know it's it's almost like church it's quite strange so i kind of like when those moments happen because they do break that tension and they do let people know okay this is cool i can be a bit more vibey it's not like i have to just sit quietly and wait for james to interact with me so they can be nice moments because yeah. I like I was at that show and I was at the the show a year earlier at a little known venue called the Sydney Opera House. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And there were so many moments like you just described where it's just like you, you had if you coughed, you've ruined the whole fucking evening. <laughs> yeah. But for yeah. you, like I, I can't imagine. I'm like, look, Factory Theatre is a great venue. I would imagine that the Sydney Opera Th- Opera House is just a little bit better. The Sydney Opera. I mean, they're two different shows, right? Like it's 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 like 
I wanted to do the factory theater because that was where I, I played my first proper um, right. Sydney shows. And I remember we saw that the first one, we did a second one and it was like a really lovely experience. And I have this vivid memory of it because I think the planes fly overhead and there was like a lot of moments where you're like, you have to pause because the plane's landing. <laughs> and uh, I just liked the idea of it. And at that time we were trying to do something that felt a bit more like, like I hate to turn back to your roots. Like it's nonsense. Like we're playing the Sydney Opera House. Like, of course, that's an amazing show. But I do love the sweaty kind of like um, smaller show. I think mm. it has a real time and place in my life. And so it felt like a cool thing to do. But now the Sydney Opera House, listen, like I think I've played it three times in my life. And every time it's been like, like uh, it is a, a, a sort of touchstone venue. You, you know, there's places I've played that are bigger. But if I say them to people, they'd be like, I don't know where that is. But you go Sydney Opera House and people are like, oh, okay. <laughs> so like I used to use it as like, I deploy it as like a, I'm actually pretty successful kind of way to do it without being like, oh, you know, like check out my stats because if people are like, where'd you play? And you're like, oh, you know, there's some shows at Sydney Opera House. People go, oh, okay, yeah. I get that. It's at Carnegie Hall. It's like that kind of level, right? right. So yeah, it's a prestigious thing. So what happens yeah. now? Like um, come Friday, the album's out. You've got some yeah. shows in the UK. Yeah. And then I imagine have you got more tour? I mean, I wish you could say, yeah, when are you, when are you coming to Australia? But <sighs> I know. the borders aren't open yet. So TBA. I know, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like we've got US and Canada in March that is about to be announced. Um, and then I think we're talking about South America. You know, uh, like Australia used to, like I was there so much. And then there was that, like obviously since those last shows, those ones you're talking about. And then I opened for London Grammar as well on a couple mm. of shows in that tour and then went to New Zealand. That was like the end of the touring life for me. Like, so basically like Australia was where I stopped because right after that, I made a conscious decision to stop touring for a few years. My daughter was born in 2018 and I wanted to just be a, a, a human being rather than just someone that toured relentlessly. Um, so like, I, I'm very keen to, to get back to Australia, to get back to New Zealand, to get back to that part of the world. Um, but yeah, I don't know when it's going to be. Um, it's all very dependent on when you guys open your borders. But basically, like as soon as it's possible, like we're going to be there. Um, because yeah, I just, again, I think when I was leaving the last time, there's this sense of like, I'll see you soon, you know, and then you don't. And then this, like these things happen and you realize shit, there's no certainty to any of this. Um, there's no certainty that I'll ever just inevitably get back there and do an amazing festival run during like your like your summer our winter where it's just like incredible to you know all those things that we just took for granted and you know that's uh that's something i want in my life again very much so well, I think, yeah i think the idea is we'll be back as normal as can be at least where where you're at right now come mid next yeah. year yeah so maybe when you release the, the next album will be yeah. for you is that like is that like... still ways away or is that like no that's yeah, not okay. always away like yeah like i, I mean like obviously i'm I'm out in the world to talk about this new album and stuff like that. But anyone that knows me knows that like, you don't know what to expect. Like after I put out, we move, I put out true care six months later. So there's a possibility that there will be, by the time I get to Australia, there will be another body of work in the world. Um, wow. But, but it depends. This is the thing. I make these proclamations and then I go and do a million other things. The only difference now is that like, I don't have touring 100% on my books until February of next year. I've pushed everything as far out as possible to ensure that I don't have to deal with, the harsh face of this reality which is like you know shows are happening but they're very protocol based and they're very like the ones that i've done have been tricky to find like a really cathartic energy in because it is just hard for people no one knows what to do 
So um, I'm try- I want to wait until we get to that point. But it does mean that I am basically in my studio nine to five. So it would be ridiculous if I didn't make new things. So you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. Such a fan of this new album. I can't wait Thank for everyone you. to hear it. And hopefully a new album soon. And hopefully yeah. you can get legally get back in the country sometime yeah. next year or at least early 2023. And we can do it oh again, man. 2022. The Plug Podcast is proudly sponsored by Audio Technica. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show on your preferred podcast platform and follow us on Instagram at The Plug with Neil Griffiths to stay up to date with episode releases and giveaways.